0: Welcome to the Soul Bodied Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Anna Kinkela. As an entrepreneur, it's easy to get caught up in all the strategies, funnels, mindset hacks, and all the doing. And while strategies are important, success in entrepreneurship ultimately depends on you and how you are being within yourself and in your business. In this space, we explore how to alchemize your internal world and go deeper than mindset. We dive into topics like conscious leadership, embodiment, spirituality, and leading from a place of wholeness and belonging within as you expand into quantum level energetic soul embodiment. Welcome to episode 26 of The Soul Bodied Entrepreneur. This is your host, Ana Kinkela. And today I am really excited to be sharing an interview, a conversation with you, with the amazing and wonderful Crystal. I'm going to give you some details about who Crystal is in just a moment. But I want to preface this conversation with just a little note for me. It was so important for me to have this conversation with Crystal because I see a lot of people not knowing how to truly listen to one another. I see a lot of people whitewashing and pushing aside people's genuine pain. In the name of spirituality and I think it's so important for us to change the way that we are showing up in spaces as leaders. This conversation is about how to be brave, how to be authentic, how to fully listen and hear someone, how to hold our own pain as well as create space for the pain of others without it negating, but actually enhancing the way that we practice spirituality, the way that we hold spaces with one another. There's a lot of conversations about light and love and oneness in spiritual communities, but rarely are there conversations on how to really hold the complexity of being a spiritual being in a human body that carries identities that mean something particular to the people who see you and experience you in the real world, right? In the 3d realm. And this is complex, right? This isn't as easy as just applying light and love to everything and talking about oneness without recognizing someone's real lived experience. This is such a crucial conversation because instead of this concept of oneness, bringing people together, it's actually tearing them apart because we are not listening to each other. We are not meeting each other. We are not truly seeing one another. In the 3D human realm, oneness to me actually just means connection and allowing space for difference, really honoring difference amongst ourselves and being brave enough to connect with one another genuinely in our pain, in our joy, with all parts of us, giving ourselves full permission to mess up and to not get it right, to just show up how we are and to really be aware of the places of privilege that we hold and to use that privilege in the best way that we can meaning using it in situations where we see someone with less privilege being hurt and stepping up speaking and calling ourselves on our own screw-ups in the times where we mess up because it will absolutely happen and that is part of the process part of our personal process So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Crystal Cobran. She is someone that I ended up connecting with in a virtual community space on Facebook. And I got on her mailing list and was receiving her words every week. And I just really connected with what she was saying, how she was sharing herself so vulnerably and bravely with her audience. And... I signed up for a newsletter because I do believe in her work in the world so strongly. So I reached out to her for this podcast a couple months back, and we both had such a crazy hectic summer that we just ended up recording the podcast last week, and I'm so glad we did. I think I could have probably spent another two hours talking to Crystal about all of this, and so I think you're going to receive incredible value from tuning in, listening to her words, and learning from her. Crystal is going to tell you more about herself and also share her story on the podcast, but as a brief introduction, I wanted to give you a little bit of an understanding of who Crystal is. So Crystal creates spaces, facilitates live conversations and workshops, and builds online training tools that help us listen to each other, see each other, and understand each other. She's really here to help us connect more and fear less. She does this by facilitating race conversations in classrooms and communities. And she does this in a way where she helps us weave our stories together. So she provides this work, um, and I really encourage you to check her out on her website and to hire her if you are looking to have these conversations in your own communities. And I think it is important because it is a way that people start to feel seen and people start to feel truly included in the conversation. So, I hope you enjoy this episode and that you receive as much as I did from this conversation with Crystal. Hello, everyone. I am so, so excited to have an in-depth conversation today with Crystal Cobran. Um, she is someone that I've been following for a little bit over a year, and I invited her onto the Soul-Bodied Entrepreneur to dive deep into talking about what bravery looks like, what having hard conversations looks like. And I'm so excited for you to hear all about her and for us to dive in today. So welcome to the show, Crystal. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Anna. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work in the world.
1: Mm. That is a very big
0: question. Yes you know? <laughs> I know I know i every time someone asks me this question, I always have a little bit of a different answer. It's kind of like rewriting myself every time, so whatever comes up for you.
1: I like that phrase that that is a bit of what it feels like. It feels like writing my finding a way to put my story into words, mm-hmm. um, and my story changes moment to moment, and so. It changes each time. Um, so I am a, I'm a story weaver, um, which means that one of my greatest loves in life is sitting in spaces with people who feel like our stories are disconnected or disjointed, and finding ways to weave our stories together or to highlight the ways that we're already connected, but that we'd missed. I, I do that in a number of ways, but the main way that I do it is by listening and creating space for connection. And right now that work looks like writing and speaking and teaching and consulting with curious and open-hearted individuals and organizations that are looking for ways to connect in conversations about race. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of an odd job. Um, It's not one that I ever thought I'd have. I have a very different plan for my life Um, and for what I thought my life was going to look like. And I am slowly learning how to yield um, to the reality of what is.
0: What an important job you have, though. I love, um, I love that you call yourself a story weaver. Um, I, I have a relationship with that phrase. There's something about just acknowledging the quilt that we're creating with each other and how we're all interconnected through sometimes these invisible lines, um, but how powerful it is when we actually sit down and, and see the lines in front of us and um, get to a space of deeper connection. So um, I, I love how people just kind of get pulled into the work that they do. And this last piece that you <laughs> mentioned, which is, You know, you never envisioned yourself doing this work, but yet you're here and you're being pulled pulled forward in it. Um, I'm just really interested in kind of your story with that and how Hmm. you got pulled into the work and how that unfolded for you. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I can't wait to hear it. This sounds like a good one.
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know. We'll have to see. I am... So I, I I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, that was my plan. I I went to the University of Florida for undergrad and majored in microbiology and cell science for the first three years. And right around my junior year, I basically couldn't take another step forward. Um, I'd known for some time that something was off and something didn't fit, but I just felt like, well, this is what I told everyone I was going to do. And this is something that seems to be respected in the world. And, you know, I've I've worked in medical offices and I I was, you know, intimately familiar with being in the medical field. And so clearly this must be what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I just hit this wall that I I couldn't get past. And I was convinced that um, when I made the choice to not go to med school, that, that was an abysmal life failure that I just never was going to recover from. I was just convinced that um, that I'd, I'd, you know I just failed and you know I was going to have to spend the rest of my life trying to make up for this failure. And so I ended up changing my major um, and enrolled in a research scholarship program. Um, and did some research looking at whether or not hurricanes present a disparate impact on the poor. And in the process of doing that, I started to notice that there was a gap between um, our really well-intentioned recommendations and the day-to-day realities that we live. Um, For example, saying to someone, well, you need to stock up and canned goods before um, the next hurricane season well, if you're living on less than paycheck to paycheck, um, that you know, seemingly really valid and well-intentioned recommendation just doesn't fit the reality that you're living day to day. And that gap called to me. I was still convinced that I'd failed, but something in me was really drawn to that gap. So I ended up going off to William & Mary as a joint law master public policy student And after the first year of my master's degree and the first year of law school, my love proposed and I transferred my law degree to GW Law in DC Mm. and um, finished my master's degree from a distance and um, just kind of kept plugging away and worked really, really hard and uh, was really afraid of failing, you know, again and thought, well, I've got to prove myself, I have to show that I'm enough. Um, And so I did, you know, all the internships and externships and every opportunity, I tried to jump at it. And then after law school, I worked as a judicial law clerk in the DC Superior Court, which is the trial court for the District of Columbia. And I clerked for about seven senior judges, a max of five at once. And I was on, you know, felony and misdemeanor and mental competency and small claims calendars. And it was this really, you know, inundating experience. But again, I was in this spot where I was starting to see gaps, you know, um, between um, how we um, adjudicate in a courtroom and between the defendants who were being sentenced and, between the attorneys who were also needing to build relationships with the defendants and the internal workings of the court system and who communicated with whom and when and why. And, and so that same gap, you know, was still calling to me, but I didn't think that that gap really had anything to do with my life plan. I was just kind of in it, you know, um, and living life. And I thought, well, my job is to go get, you know, a big firm job. And that's what I need to do. You know, I have student loans. That's what I got to do. And I ended up moving with my love, who finished his PhD, um, down to Chapel Hill and went into this period of time where almost nothing I tried to do worked like nothing. Mm-hmm. It was like this devastating, <laughs> embarrassing, gut wrenching period of life where I thought I'd failed before in med school didn't work out, but then when I went into this season of life, it was like a whole other level. Mm. And it just, um, it was gut-wrenching. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to bounce back. And then lo and behold, when I was 34 weeks pregnant with our um, first tiny human being that lives in this house, um, we moved for his tenure track position, which he now has. And so I moved at thirty four weeks with basically no network <laughs> in the new town that I was moving to, um, and still trying to find a way to build my career and feeling just really low. And I ended up building a relationship with the former dean of the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. Her name is Stephanie Linquis. and after. Uh, We got to know each other, but she asked me if I wanted to teach a course on race and education, and I have always wanted to teach, and so I jumped at it. I said yes, Uh, and I was terrified (laughs) because now I was responsible for standing in front of a room and creating an environment where every single person in the space knew that their voice belonged, And I knew I never wanted my students to feel the way that I often felt in classrooms, which was very small. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted every single student to know that they belonged. Mm -hmm. And I had literally zero idea (laughs) how to make that happen. Mm -hmm. All I knew was that I didn't want my classroom to be about shame, judgment, or me and my stuff. And I was running pretty tight, to put it mildly, because I just had my second daughter, who was four weeks old when I started teaching. Mm. So I, you know, began teaching and I I got a really good piece of advice from um, from Stephanie Lindquist, Dean Lindquist, um here at the time. And, you know, she said, you know, if you don't if you don't know the answer to something, you know, um, just kind of own it, you know what I mean? Just say, you know, like, I don't know, let me do some research and get back to you. Mm -hmm. And I really thought about that a lot. And it sat, something about that felt right to me. Like it it sat well, like in my being. And so like on the first day of class, I told my students, I don't have all the answers and I don't expect you to either. And none of them believed me. not usually something you hear from a professor (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) they basically looked at me with a mixture of you liar (laughs) (laughs) and I don't understand what you're saying um like none of them believe me Mm -hmm. and it took about three to four weeks um before they were like okay she's for real Mm -hmm. and at some point after that something happened in the classroom um that I I realized was significant a bit later, you know, down the line. Um, My classes are conversation driven. and So I teach by asking questions. I didn't have a textbook. I assembled all the materials and all of the materials were Supreme Court cases um, in education, whether it was primary, secondary or higher ed. And I did it that way so that students could learn how to read the case law for themselves and they could watch the precedent evolve. And they could begin to see the dynamic between that, you know, question of do like, are we creating social change or are we responding, you know, to social change as far as the court system goes. Hmm. And students began to share really personal stories about their own life experiences in connection with the cases that we were reading. And that shifted the entire dynamic of the classroom. And as that was taking place, I was beginning to see myself and my own fear. And I was beginning to recognize how big of an impact my fear about being wrong could have on my students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And there was one day early on where they were so quiet, like like just deathly quiet. And I remember asking them, because we had that kind of relationship, why are you so quiet today? And in that moment, I saw myself and I had come into class that day feeling so insecure and so worried about being able to be perfect that without realizing it, I was sucking the energy out of the room. And so I slowly began to realize, well, if I want to create this space for my students then I've got to work on my own stuff and the classroom is not the space for me to work on my own stuff so I began to do that work, and then I created another course called, so this first course was called um, Race and the Law, the next course was called American Courts, Race, and Social Issues, and I happened to be teaching this course during the fall of 2016, mm-hmm. and so students were coming into the classroom where the space was not about me, my perspective, or my opinions, And they were thinking really critically, and there was room for all of their perspectives and all of their points of view. And I will never forget the day after the election.
0: Mm. I
1: will never get standing in that room. And a lot of students showed up, and they they were just shook. Like, that's the best word that I have. Like, they just felt very disoriented, even, like, no matter what their political perspective was. They just felt really off kilter, and um, it was a really tender and delicate space to be in. And I just remember standing in the front of that room and just feeling the weight of the responsibility of needing to create a space where, again, every single person knew that their voice belonged and where students could process their fear or their optimism, you know, or their confusion or their disappointment or their concern, or whatever they were bringing to the table. And again, I didn't know it at the time, but that experience turned out to be a really um, kind of crucial moment for me. And I taught Race and the Law one more time in the spring of 2017. And every single time I taught, my students kept telling me, we've never had a space where we could have the conversation in this way. We've never had a space where we can have the conversation in this way and it was after um the spring of 2017 that um in that window that the light bulb kind of started going on and i started to recognize well maybe this is a service that is needed by organizations in our general culture that need a space to be able to navigate the race conversation but you know we don't know where to start and we're afraid that if we start, it's going to go horribly off the rails, and we're going to end up doing more harm than good. Mm. And so, I slowly, you know, began um, consulting just through word of mouth. Um, I started consulting in the spring of 2017, and then word of mouth continued to spread, and I continued consulting in the um, spring of 2018. And I um, professors kept asking me you know, well, how how are you able to create this space in the classroom? And so then I thought, well, you know, maybe it would be helpful for me to write about this. Um, maybe this is something that, you know, professors need. And so I, I wrote a book proposal and I pitched it to education publishers and it ended up being signed. It ended up being signed with Rutledge Taylor Francis. Um, and I began working on that book in 2018 and I launched my podcast in the summer of 2018 because uh, we tend to learn a lot through modeling as human beings and there just weren't many spaces where we could watch people have everyday conversations about race without it being like a thing you know like either we're debating each other or we're like trying to fix each other they're weren't really many spaces where we could just be together as we were learning how to have the conversation. Yeah. So I created the podcast with that specifically in mind. Um, And then I kept consulting. And then this year um, I had to write the book (laughs) (laughs) and, (laughs) and edit the book, um, which is called the brave educator honest conversations about navigating race in the classroom mm. and I rebranded my website um, so that there's an online home for people who are looking for a safe space for tools to navigate this conversation. And I began running my daily blog. Mm. Um, and I guess in the midst of all of that has been the realization or learning the lesson time and time again, that not knowing isn't failure. Um, Not knowing is where discovery begins. Mm. And that shift um, has helped me and is helping me learn how to surrender to the process that I'm in instead of trying to make it be what I thought it was supposed to be.
0: Mm. Oh my gosh, Crystal, that's an amazing story. Um, There's so many pieces that I just want to tap into and what you just shared. Um, But I think one of the things that I saw as you were telling your story was how much your perceived failures actually kind of helped you realign with the path that was meant for you. And this piece of not knowing is not failing. It's where your discovery begins. That is so powerful. Um, and it's so hard in the moment, right? When we're in it and we're feeling like we're failing, there's like the sense of being lost, you know, feeling like you're not enough, like all the stuff that comes up in that space, but that your story is so powerful and really showcasing the way you get to kind of step back and look at all of the places where you failed, but where a lesson or a diamond came out of it. Um, and how I put you in onto your purpose—that's really powerful.
1: It um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It um, it I I agree with you. You know, and it's a lesson that I continue to learn, and and I can't I can't even tell you how much <laughs> um, I continue to learn this lesson because the the failure is the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like yeah. it's it's not the end. And that's what I thought, you know, like I thought that every time I didn't reach an expectation that I'd set for myself or that, you know, I felt like I'd been set, you know, by the culture around me or by the people around me that 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 gap meant that I was ending a story when in fact it was the beginning of a new paragraph, you know, of a new book, of a new page. And it was never the end the whole time, you know, it it was never the end. And even now it's not the end as much as I might struggle to remember that it's not the end. It's the beginning because that's, that really is how we begin to discover.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was really healing medicine for me too. So I appreciate
1: that. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: I, um, so there's so many pieces that I just really want to dive into when it comes to your work in the world. And, you know, one of them is this piece around connection and fostering true connection with between ourselves from all different backgrounds. And I'm just curious to kind of know, you know, what that process looks like for you. And it seems like one of those things is storytelling and telling mm-hmm. your own story and interweaving it. But, um, you know, how how do you create that connection? What, what's what are the most important things about making space, those kinds of spaces for people?
1: That is a really, really um, powerful question. Um and the first thing that comes to mind is listening. Mm. Um, I actually I actually think that listening is one of the most important components, if not the most important component of my work. Because, especially in difficult conversations, um, and by difficult, I don't mean that word in the dismissive sense. I mean as in this is a conversation that involves navigating human pain intertwined with human reality. And so it is an inherently nuanced and potentially painful conversation to journey through. We can sometimes feel that pain coming if we're not already feeling it in lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that experience can cause us to react by trying to fix everything. Mm-hmm. but the difficulty with jumping over listening straight to fixing is that we miss each other in the process. Mm. Yes. I can't see you if I'm trying to fix you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I can't, I, I can't really hear what you're trying to say to me. Mm-hmm. The, the questions that you're trying to convey, the pain that you're sharing the, the sense of, of weariness and weeping that you feel because you, maybe you can't believe that you missed this. Like, how could I not have seen this? Or, or perhaps you feel like, I don't know how to convey the reality of what I live. And I don't understand why it is so hard for me to find these words. Like, I can't meet you there if I skip listening and I jump straight to trying to fix you. And that that piece is fundamental. It's just, it's where, it's where we begin to journey together. Is in the listening.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so. That's such a potent truth. Um, And I often find, you know, I'm I'm someone who's typically I've come from a long line of fixers, and I I've always been a fixer. And there's just this like tendency for everyone to want to make each other feel better Mm -hmm. um and you're right it's something that often comes between us actually connecting heart to heart and seeing one another Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's been something that I've had to deprogram within myself this tendency to want to just like fix and make someone feel
1: better Mm -hmm. me too (laughs) you know like really no truly like I can't tell you like like me too like so much of this work is me learning how to sit with what is instead of trying to make what I wish was be Mm -hmm. like just, just being willing to sit. Okay. So this is what is, and the thing that blows my mind, like it's just, it time and time again, is that it's in the middle where we actually begin to find the joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like I, I you know like I, I thought that what I had to do was like fix it put the band-aid on it you know let's get past it and then we can be happy yeah. but I have found in my work and in my life that it's in taking the next step in the journey and in learning how to be present with what actually is happening like what is real and what we are experiencing and feeling and processing that is where we begin to find our way towards each other. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, like when we skip over all of that, we end up pushing each other apart, often with really good intentions, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: once we skip the connection piece, then I'm trying to fix you and you're trying to fix me and we can't find each other there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, I think this requires a lot of bravery, right, on both, both parties. Um, we have to, you know, take ownership of what's happening within us and then also provide space for someone else. Um, how do you approach having that kind of bravery or being that courageous?
1: You know, it's, it's so funny that you, you put that beautiful word to what I do because I don't, I don't at all see it that way. Mm. Um, and I definitely don't see it that way in the moment. Um, I see it as connection. And to me, connection is an invitation. Mm. So when I, when I walk into a room to deliver a talk, or when I'm standing you know, up at the front and I'm giving a keynote, or I am working with a client and we're doing a group workshop, mm-hmm. I am deeply, deeply aware that all that I can do is stand in that space and be willing to connect and to invite connection with the way that I share my story with the way that I choose to respond to questions and concerns and fears with openness instead of dismissiveness with my demeanor with my heart with being willing to bring myself to the table Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but at any moment the entire room could get up and be like nana nana we're leaving You know what I mean? Like, it's not like the fact that I choose to do that then somehow entitles me to receive it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. There's always a possibility of rejection. There's always a possibility of rejection. And what I'm choosing to do is to risk that Mm -hmm. because I believe that connection and belonging and weaving our stories together is worth that risk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't view myself as being brave. The challenge for me is to show up, Mm -hmm. to choose to step into the room and to be willing to be there as myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, to not put on the mask Mm -hmm. and, you know, to not say the words that I think I'm supposed to say, but to actually say the words that are in my heart. And when someone asks me a question, to not respond to the question that I wish I wish they'd asked, you know, to like respond to the actual words that are being spoken to me yeah. and to be willing to be real and to own that. It's terrifying. Like I've never been in a conversation about Race that felt like, you know, sipping a Mai Tai on the beach. Like, I have never, ever, 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 ever been in a conversation about race mm-hmm. that felt easy and comfortable. Yeah. It has always demanded of me that I choose to either create connection or disconnection because I decide to react to my fear. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, everything that you're saying just I think that right now what's what I see happening in the world at least on one level is there are a lot of people who are stepping into their voice, who are finding that bravery and that courage and it's also takes a lot of courage to be able to kind of go against like social cultural Rules, attitudes, ways of being that want you to fit into a box and want you to stay small, Um, especially ancestrally, like everything, right? Um, And so, I mean, I'm curious, how do you do that work within yourself? Like, how do you how do you claim your voice powerfully um, when there are all of these other voices that are afraid of being judged or rejected or um Or you know, afraid of not being seen, how do you how do you hold that and still show up anyway?
1: You know, um, it is for me, it is it is imperative that I am willing to tell myself the truth. Mm-hmm. Like imperative. Um, and especially in this particular conversation. So in the race conversation, within our culture, we don't really have a set of broadly agreed to norms. We just don't. Um, You know, if if we were gonna have a conversation, say about, um, I don't know, college football, right? Um, Maybe we went to different undergrads and maybe our undergrads were rivals, but we could actually navigate through that conversation together, right? Like we could banter, we could have a back and forth. Um, That's something we do on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. None of that exists in the race conversation. Yeah, The race conversation tends to operate on polarities, right? So it's, it's an either or. So either we're sitting down and we're going to hash out the solution, you know, mm-hmm. in the next five hours, or we're not talking about this at all. Mm-hmm. Or either we're going to sit down and we completely agree, mm-hmm. or I'm done with you and we're not going to have this conversation. Um, so there's no, there's, there's no in-between and in the in-between is the how. Mm -hmm. So we know that we need to have this conversation, but we believe we're already supposed to know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And then we skip straight to judging each other and ourselves because we don't know how to do it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And in the process (laughs) we end up depriving ourselves of the opportunity to learn how to do it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're describing that like mind emotional loop that happens and just the way that we get trapped in, in the same way of relating to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I know that in my, in my circles in my community and I tend to be in, you know, mostly spiritual communities with other women And it tends to be mostly white women. Um, And I think one of the things that I've observed in our conversations um, when it comes to race is there's this kind of either people, you know, want to talk about the way that we are all one with each other from the spiritual Mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And if someone You know, talks about, okay, yes, we're all one, and there's also power inequality in society that we need to acknowledge. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, There's a lot of just, you know, silencing and um, a lot of, you know, kind of dismissing people's real lived experiences, especially people of color. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm wondering like in this space of how to have conversations about race that are authentic with where we are, but also that you know, are conscious of the impact that we create and also, you know, holding space for both all being one and, you know, there's power inequality in society. How do you navigate that space? How can you, you know, create space for people to be heard Mm -hmm. and also be authentic?
1: Mm -hmm. So this, um, this question is, um, one of the questions that lies at the very, very root of my work. Um, And if it's okay with you, I'd Mm -hmm. like to share a story in response. Please. Okay. So as I was um, beginning to do consulting, I was doing some community workshops, um, which are amazing to do. And I was getting ready for um, a community workshop one Saturday. I think it was um, maybe back in the fall of 2017, winter time. And I, you know, there are tiny humans in our house. Getting through weekends can be like an episode of Survivor, especially if there isn't food. You know, it's <laughs> like, okay, so we got to survive this, you know. And I'm getting ready and I'm heading out to the workshop. And I get there um, and it's evening and There were three of us in this space. Um, One woman uh, was Latinx, one woman was white, and then myself.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And we're sitting and we're talking and we're connecting. And after the workshop, you know, we all have connected. We have each other's phone numbers. Um, Their feedback was really positive. But I remember sitting in this space and there was a presence that was there That has come up for me multiple times when I've been having conversations about race or in conversations about race. And it was more palpable than it had ever been before. And I remember leaving feeling like a fraud, like, feeling like, Crystal, who in the world are you to think that you can help anyone have conversations about race? Like, what are you doing? Like, you can't do this. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I called um, a friend of mine who happens to be a doctor (laughs) from undergrad. We've known each other since we were teenagers. Um, And I I told her how I was feeling and she listened. And then she was like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, you're going to figure this out. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the next three to four days, I realized um, some things, two things in particular. Mm -hmm. One, I needed to be willing to let myself be seen. Mm -hmm. Which meant and means that I needed to be willing to talk about what race feels like in my body. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I need to be willing to talk about what it's like when I go to the grocery store and the person behind the meat counter doesn't really want to serve me.
0: Mm.
1: I need to be willing to talk about what it's like to be raising two human beings that happen to be women of color in a world where so many of the messages that are sent about beauty, even at this age, frequently do not include them. Mm -hmm. I needed to be willing to talk about what it feels like to walk into a space and to know that the fact that I'm black and then I'm female comes before my humanity. Mm -hmm. I need to be willing to talk about what that feels like. And that is painful and delicate and deeply sensitive for me. But that became really clear. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I realized was that I had run smack into the space between us. Mm-hmm. So there's a human being who's born into a body, and this body is not a body of color. Mm-hmm. And this person is going through life day to day, and their whole life they're told that the story that they're in is the only story that exists. Mm-hmm. And one day there's like a Star Wars moment. All of a sudden there's like a whole planet and it's like right there, like right, right, like right in front of their face. It's like nose to nose. And the reaction is what in the literal heck, like, how did I not know? How could I have missed this? Why did no one tell me what is going on? and in the immediate aftermath of that, there is a reaching towards human beings who are born into bodies of color. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And on the other end is a human who's born into a body of color, who has had to navigate the pain of being in a body of color since even before entering this world, and who has had to live their entire life seeing that there is a separate story which they don't get to be a part of Mm -hmm. and being told that their story doesn't exist. And the reaction to the reaching often is, look, I love you and I see you, but you need to understand that this pain that I'm navigating threatens to decimate me and my existence. So I cannot unpack this for you. I cannot because I will not be able to make it. Mm -hmm. And so then there's this space between us. Even in close, intimate relationships, there's this untouchable patch of earth that's just there. Mm -hmm. And that brings us back to that moment in the classroom when my students began to share not just about the material, but about their personal experiences and feelings connected to the material. The way that we cross the space between us is with shared feeling. Mm -hmm. That's how we cross it. It's not fixing, it's not performance, it's not platitudes, it's not aspirations. It is through shared feeling. It is in the weaving that we manage to cross the space between us.
0: Yeah. That legitimately made me tear up. That was a really, really beautiful way of describing that. And you're absolutely right. that space between all of us, if we can sit in it, um, is like the, the ground where we find that connection and actually like really connecting with our heart centers when we share our stories in that way. And when we can sit with the pain of others and mm-hmm. the pain within ourselves, mm-hmm. which I think is something that I see, I, my external observation is that because we have such difficulty sitting with our own pain that it's hard to sit with the pain of others and actually recognize how something affects them in their own mm-hmm. life because of the yes. identities that they hold. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. And that's, that's what I hear. And this, this is, this is like where the work comes in, right? Mm-hmm. Is as you ask that question, it really could have been so simple for me to dismiss it outright. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me to say, well, look, if, if you're not willing to see the reality, then I can't help you. Mm-hmm. But the trouble there is that we end up leaving the pain on the table mm-hmm. because when I heard you ask that question and you described so many deeply spiritual, well-intentioned women mm-hmm. feeling that sense of resistance towards, you know, going there in the conversation, yeah. what I heard was fear and pain. Yeah. That's what I hear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, the pain of the stories that have remained unspoken feels vast and bottomless and endless. Mm-hmm. And the pain is so extraordinary and wide mm-hmm. that we often don't know where to begin. Mm-hmm. And on top of that pain, there's the pain of recognizing what we did not see and what we did not know and what we could not hear. And that pain is real. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The pain may not necessarily be the same in scale as the pain of navigating life in a body of color, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and yet it is pain. Mm -hmm. And this is not a cute or fancy thing to say. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the point of commonality in this conversation is pain. Mm -hmm. And if the pain isn't a competition and it's not a comparison, but if we can begin to acknowledge, you know, something, I'm in pain because I'm living this. And maybe I'm in pain because I haven't lived this. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden there's a patch of dirt that we share. Yeah where we can begin to meet each other. We Mm -hmm. can meet each other there. Mm -hmm. If we can begin to recognize that this conversation is in fact, in large part, a dialogue about human pain. And I have pain and you have pain, so let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. And let's begin to find our way through it. Yeah.
0: And I think what you're describing is the actual meaning of oneness, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not, oh, we're all one, so it's all good, but that we're all one because we all have pain and it's okay to start there
1: mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm.
0: connect with each other and mm-hmm. understand each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Oneness doesn't happen, um, period. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the wish of oneness can become... An inadvertent dismissal. Yes, if we are not careful. Yep, oneness happens in the through. Mm-hmm. Oneness happens in the weaving. Oneness happens one moment at a time as we unpack and yeah. we share and we cast aside and we sort and we acknowledge and we begin to get down to the reality of what is taking place. That is where we can to begin to create the oneness that we desire mm-hmm. but if we begin with the presumption of oneness then we can inadvertently turn ourselves into fixers yeah and that fixing begins to become dismissiveness and the dismissiveness ends up driving our stories further apart and as our stories are driven further apart then we are less and less able to see and understand and connect with one another
0: Yes, that was beautifully stated.
1: Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Um, I I know that you have an amazing book coming out that everyone should check out. is there anything else that you want to wanna share about the work that you're doing
1: in the world, any ways that we can support you? Thank you for asking that. Um, yes, there are. So I, um, I am looking for ways to connect with women who are craving connection in this conversation. Mm. If you are a woman with whom that sentence resonates, I would love for you to visit my website. It's crystalcobran.com. There is a free training that I have there called How to Create Authentic Connection Even If You're Afraid. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to take that free training and I'd love for you to sign up for my daily blog posts. And then hit reply, because I want to know who you are. And I want to hear the questions that you've been holding inside of you that are unspoken. And I want to know about the support that you've been looking for as you've been trying to navigate this conversation that you've been struggling to find. I'm here, and I'm listening, and I want to support you, and I want to hear from you
0: thank you so much crystal
1: thank you